Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, our topic is mountain towns and local food systems. And this is a topic that Cody Townsend and I talked about a bit on our last Reviewing the News episode. And I mentioned that we were going to have our own Kara Williard on the show because Kara has been working in local food systems, studying these things. And I will let her, at the start of this conversation, tell you a lot more about her specific background and why she is a great person to have weighing in on these topics. And today's conversation is just part one of what will be a multiple episode series where we're going to be looking at this question of mountain towns and local food and local food systems from a variety of different perspectives. So these are incredibly important topics for those of us who live in mountain towns, and it's an equally important topic for anyone who visits mountain towns. So I'm actually going to leave it at that for now, and then we're just going to go ahead and get into this conversation where early on, Kara is going to start helping us just understand and appreciate all the different players and the different angles from which to tackle this topic of mountain towns and food and growing local food and seasonality. And well, there's a whole bunch of moving parts to this. And we hope to give you a better handle on these things through this new series. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with our very own Kara Williard. Here we go. All right, well, I am here in Blister Headquarters, in Elevation Hotel, in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, with the one and only Kara Williard. Kara, hi. Hey, Jonathan. This is cool. We are kicking off a series on mountain towns and food that you and I have been talking about for kind of a while now, and we have it kind of plotted out. We're both very excited about it. I think this is going to be very interesting, and I'm actually really excited to have you here to kick off the series, because it turns out you have a very interesting background and relationship to these topics. And so I think what I'm going to have you do first is just talk a little bit about that background. And then we are going to read an email that Cody Townsend and I talked about and read on the air for our Reviewing the News podcast last week. But this email actually turns out is quite a nice bit of an introduction to some of the things that we're going to be talking about in our mini series. So Talk a little bit about food and farming and how on earth you got involved in these things. Awesome. Well, I am excited to be here today um, on the Blister podcast talking about my favorite topic. <laughs> Some people might think it's all ski boots and feet for this girl, but believe it or not, food and farming is really high up there as far as my passions. Um, so when I was about 17, I volunteered on an organic farm for the first time, and it was just awesome. Right away, I was able to connect the dots between social well-being, environmental health, and how it's tied to local nutritious food. 
And I think I came home from that experience and I told my parents I wanted to be an organic farmer <laughs> and they were a little bit taken aback, but they've come to support me nonetheless in this vision. Um, my undergraduate degree at UNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico was a focus on sustainable community development. And my capstone project for that degree, I spent two years building a business plan for my aunt's 350-acre cattle and sheep ranch in the mountains of northern New Mexico. And then after I finished that degree, I actually moved up to her ranch and helped her implement this entire business plan. Um, so we did a bunch of different things, but some of the things we implemented included rotational grazing, so helping bring better land health and land productivity through her cattle and sheep operation. We also built out an agritourism component. So this was a really cool way to bring people onto the land and to kind of see what we were doing. Um, also to like learn about local food and what that looks like on the ground. And it's also just a great way for farmers to be able to have people bring income onto the land without them having to like leave with their produce to go sell at a market. Also expanded the vegetable production quite a bit while I was there. And all of this helped her become more economically viable just because she did have different streams of revenue coming in. And it also was great just to see the land health improve within a couple of years. Um, I've worked at a bunch of different farms over the last 10 years, including like pretty large urban operations in Albuquerque. And then I also spent um, part of a summer working at a permaculture farm down in the Yucatan jungle in Mexico. So that was really cool. Um, I got to grow some of my favorite foods like coffee and cacao, but I also quickly realized I was not cut out for farming in the jungle, and I promptly returned to the mountains. Most recently, I attained my master's in environmental management degree from Western Colorado University, and this is a project-based master's program. So through that, I received a one-and-a-half-year fellowship through Mountain Roots Food Project, and they're an organization here in the Gunnison Valley that works to build a more resilient food system. They have a variety of different ways they do that, um, but I ended up working under their sustainable agriculture program, and my role was um, basically starting a farm from the ground up, and that consisted, basically constituted my graduate project. So took what was a fallow dirt lot and turned it into a really thriving community farm that produced a bunch of food in its first year. We produced close to 3,000 pounds of food in the first few months of that project, um, so that was just amazing to see. I have since stepped away from the farm management role, but that farm is continuing. It's something I get to see every time I drive north to Crested Butte, and it's just really exciting to see just another community farm producing food here for the valley that I love. So that was awesome. And now my partner, Zach, and I are actually focusing our farming efforts on our own project, which I might talk more about later in the episode. Um, but that's Sunny Sage Farm. We're doing a six-acre permaculture project in the lower Gunnison Valley. <laughs> so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is why we are talking about food and farming with Kara. But before we continue, what in particular was it that caused you to realize you were not cut out for jungle farming? Oh, man. Was it the snakes? <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a few pieces of this, and I don't want to spoil it because we might talk uh, about some of it. So, okay. Yeah, Kara keeps telling me that she won't share anecdotes with me today because we have an upcoming episode of Gear 30 reviewing the reviewer, 
that is going to be dedicated to Kara. So it's it's kind of like Shark Week at Blister, except it's Kara Week. Like you were just on Gear 30. Here you are on the Blister podcast. You get your own Gear 30 episode this Friday. Yeah, it's the Shark Week, but Kara Week. I'll keep it to three words. Okay. Scabies, snakes, and scorpions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there you have it. That's why we don't farm in the jungle. That's why we don't farm in the jungle. And tune in to this Friday's Gear 30 episode where we can hear an expansion of those three words. Yes, I'll dive, I'll dive back into those dark memories. Okay, good. Hopefully. I always love dragging up painful, <laughs> terrifying memories for people. So good. Okay, so that's your background on the food side of things. We're going to be talking more about your boot fitting work and ski life and mountain bike career. You, you've done a lot of things. <laughs> Shoulder shrug. <laughs> she, she just gave the like, yeah, I know. We're going to record that conversation tomorrow. Oh, I get to do back-to-back yeah, episodes Yay. with you. Good. Let's read this email from Tim. This came in as a question for the Mountain Town Advice segment. Cody and I talked about this. I did say in that episode, like, we're going to bring Kara on because we were going to be launching this food thing soon. So here we are, folks. This was Tim's question, and there's it just touches on a lot of important things that we are going to be talking about in this four-part miniseries. So here we go. The food available in Mountain Town grocery stores, especially the produce because of transport distances, etc., seems to always be lacking. Do you have any strategies to finding slash keeping better food? I recall one Granby, Colorado nurse telling me that she kept a small greenhouse for this reason. European alpine towns seem to have an entirely different cuisine with a lot of preserved meats and cheeses as a result. Any thoughts of food growing or seeking out, more options, etc., would be greatly appreciated. That's the email. lot going on there, right? So what do you think? Do you want to just start by taking a part of that and we discuss that for a bit? What do you think? Yeah, Tim's question is great because it really alludes to a lot of the kind of issues and complexities that revolve around some of these remote mountain towns. Um, So yeah, I think we could just dive into kind of what I see as the solution to some of these problems, and that's just moving towards a more local food system. Okay. And turns out, this has been something we've debated a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, local food systems is a term you want to know. This is what the, the pros, this is how the pros talk about it. I was asking Kara, like, you sure we want to say local food system and punchline after many hours on this? She was like, yes, this is just what we're going with. So define that. What does a local food system mean and or look like and include? Totally. So I think some of you may be familiar with that term. Others of you maybe have never heard it before. Um, But I like to think of a local food system as a place-based food economy. So that means this economy is centered around a specific community or region and that every actor or stakeholder within that region has ties between their community, their economy, and the environment in which they live in. Um, So they're connected in some way to these mutual things that kind of has them as equally invested stakeholders in this place-based food economy. Okay, so talk about more concretely, who would some of these stakeholders typically be? 
All right. So yeah, there's a lot of different actors within that value chain. Um, the producers, obviously your farmers and ranchers and the people growing the food. Um, then there's the processors. And sometimes those are the people, the farmers themselves actually like washing, packing, um, getting the produce ready for market consumption. Um, but not always. Sometimes there is like a middleman involved in that process. So farmers could like drop off produce and maybe they have a value added producer that they work with to like turn those tomatoes into salsa or whatever it may be. Um, so there is that next step in which you're like taking raw produce and turning it into a value added item. Then there's also the distributors and they play a huge part in this local food economy. So I don't want us to just think like really granular about a small local community having this like completely closed loop system. We can zoom out a bit and think about more of like a regionalized food system. So that might be like a 200 to 300 mile radius in which you have different uh, growing climates. So like up here in the Gunnison Valley, we do a really good job of producing nice leafy green uh, vegetables all summer long. And there's a lot of parts like lower down in the valley, like Paonia, for example, cannot produce those vegetables all summer long. They're really good at producing um, more heat loving crops such as squash and tomatoes and fruit. And so when you have this regional food economy, you're able to diversify a lot of the products and crops that are available to all the consumers within that value chain. And then of course, um, distributors might also be small grocery stores. Um, there might be larger grocery stores that are purchasing locally. And that is something that you're starting to see a shift in is some of these larger chains, um, trying to find more local sourcing for all the produce that they're selling. And you think about just the efficiency of that is you're not having to, you know, truck stuff from a thousand miles away, you're able to bring it all a little bit closer. And while the actual cost of those goods might be a little bit more, the externalized costs, um, such as like driving a thousand miles are less. Um, restaurants are another form of a distributor. And so there's a lot of great local restaurants that always are looking to source food locally. And so that's another great example of a distributor. And then of course, there's us, the consumers. Um, so the people who are purchasing the food, people who are looking to, you know, buy locally where they can and when they can. And a little bit later in the episode, we'll probably talk about all the different ways in which you can interact with your local food system and find that produce for yourself. Um, but for now, that's kind of like the picture of the value chain as far as everything from producer to consumer. Gotcha. That was helpful. So we've identified sort of the all the players in the play, as it were. That's very Shakespearean of me, <laughs> I thought. I slept like three hours last night. So if I start, if my references start getting like, yeah, Elizabethan England, that's maybe why. <laughs> maybe that's what I do when I'm tired. Those are the players and that's helpful. Now let's start moving into like some of the other specific issues that like Tim identifies in this email. Where do you want to go from here? Totally. So I think like one thing we can just think of is what is the system that we're currently operating within? And most of you might know that that's more like an industrialized food system model. Um, so on average, within the industrial food system, food is traveling almost a thousand miles from producer to plate. So we're just looking to kind of close that in a little bit. Um, this faraway food system can lead to a lot of like disconnects. So as a consumer, you don't know who your farmer is. 
You don't know the quality of that food or the conditions in which it was grown. And a lot of this can lead to some like prob problems or even exploitation on like the side of the farmer or the land itself or the animals, especially in like large scale animal agriculture. And it's problematic because a lot of these externalized costs that I mentioned earlier are hidden from view. It's really hard to recognize like the costs of this food system because we don't really witness them in our community. They're not occurring in our backyard. So when food's traveling that far, it's a little bit hard to fully grasp all the costs associated with that food, whether we're paying for them or not as consumers. Gotcha. So specifically on Tim's question about why it seems like sometimes produce in particular can just be either lacking or not looking so hot. Let me put it that way talk about this. I mean, when, when Cody and I talked about it, you know, to, to skip, you know, further down into Tim's email, right? He's like, you go to European Alpine towns and you're going to see a lot of meats, cheese, potatoes. And so this kind of raises, I think, an interesting question, right? Of like, well, should we as people get used to or expect to be eating the exact same fruits and vegetables, et cetera, year round? Or to what extent is it just simply better on different fronts to like, no, start adjusting, especially for those of us who live in some fairly remote places, et cetera. What are your thoughts on this? Totally. So I think Tim's question was interesting because it actually is bringing up a good example of a local food system, which is a lot of the towns in Europe operate on a more localized food system. And what that leads to is a lot more seasonal eating. Um, so, you know, seasonal eating is difficult because we kind of operate in not only this industrialized food system, but also a pretty globalized food system, meaning we all have like expectations of eating bananas 365 days a year. Um, so I think one thing I'll talk about a little later on is like all the things we can do as consumers to support the local food system. But it is good to start thinking a little bit about like, when can I make that seasonal choice versus the choice of the avocado or the banana that came from really far away? Um, I'm not pointing fingers or anything. It's something that we're all guilty of and we're all very accustomed to this diet. And realistically, we might not ever have that 100% local diet. Um, but it's good to start thinking about that when you are able to choose the local choice. We can go that direction. But really what Tim's question is alluding to is this issue of food insecurity. Um, so the paradox is that a lot of mountain towns do exist in pretty rural areas, um, and yet they still experienced a heightened level of food insecurity. Um, for example, here in the Gunnison Valley, about one out of every 10 people experiences food insecurity. And I don't want to pinpoint this as an issue that's completely unique to mountain towns. Food insecurity is a major issue in urban areas across the United States. Um, so I'm not trying to take away from that. It is a prevalent problem, but these remote mountain towns do experience it too. And it is in part because of how remote we are. Um, and then also thinking about like how the COVID-19 pandemic really exposed like how remote these mountain towns are um, and how fragile our food system can be. So we can probably all think of experiences in the last two years where we went to the grocery store and saw shelves empty, or we went to go pick up a couple items and they weren't available. 
And um, the COVID-19, I think, just really exposed like the tenuousness of our supply chains. And because of how remote mountain towns are, it makes us more vulnerable to these shortages and then maybe less resilient to some of these like external market impacts. Um, but the good news is, is a lot of farms and ranches do exist near or in mountain towns. And sometimes it's really just about bridging that connection and um, also just trying to build more demand locally. So you might be surprised like how much food is being exported from your region to further regions. And if you can build demand locally and kind of build in these networks for like better distribution or more um, grocery stores that are willing to source locally, then you're building more demand. And as a result, maybe that food gets to stay a little bit closer to its community. Um, so I think that's a really interesting piece of it is just how we can build demand as consumers. And food security um, can be thought of in a few different ways. It's kind of like a continuum. So the first piece to that continuum is how to improve access. And that is just closing the immediate gap. So the people who really need the food, how do we get them food? Um, there was a lot of like free food relief efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic because people who hadn't historically been food insecure became food insecure as a result of the pandemic. Um, but the second step to that continuum is localization. So really trying to build more opportunities for local food in your community. And that is, again, on both the side of the producers as well as the consumers. So how can we support our farmers? How can we support our ranchers? And then how can we make it so that as consumers, we all have like equal access to this local nutritious food? Um, and then lastly, the big piece of it is like self-sufficiency into that food system. So this means building a system in which like everyone has equal access to this food and you can not only meet your ind individual food needs, but you have like choice and sovereignty. So that means you can, you can choose to um, buy the local goods that might be a little bit pricier um, because there's been like systems built into that that help you access that food more easily. So let's talk a bit about how we grow that demand. And I kind of would be interested if you could sort of help us like even sort of list these in kind of, this is what you think is like the number one thing, if there is that, right? If you can make one thing happen along the, how do we get people more conscious of all of this? You know, what would that look like? Yeah. So I think the good news is there is a lot of ways for consumers to interact with their local food system and it can be adapted to fit your lifestyle or the amount of space you have in your backyard or the amount of time you have in your life. Um, but the one thing I think is really cool is the concept of CSAs. So that's community supported agriculture. And for those that don't know what that is, that's basically where you become a shareholder with a local farmer and basically you're investing outright at the beginning of the season for a certain share of that farmer's produce. In return, every week throughout the growing season, you'll get a box of their produce. And a lot of farmers operate on like more of a multi-farmer model where they're sourcing like eggs and meat from the local rancher all into this 
one box. And so you can kind of have one box that provides a lot of your grocery needs. Um, a lot of farmers also provide different share sizes. So if it's just you and your partner, you can get a smaller share. If you're trying to feed a whole family, you could do a whole family share. Um, but CSAs are awesome and they're a great model that provide a lot of benefits both to farmers and to consumers. Um, they're great for farmers because the farmers get to kind of sell and market their products ahead of the really busy part of the season. Um, so farmers markets are great, but they're really time intensive for farmers and they have to kind of show up and sell. Whereas with the CSA, they kind of have a lot of their produce accounted for as far as who's purchasing it at the beginning of the season. So they get to get that out of the way. They don't have to worry about that once it's the busy season. Yeah. And I mean, we increasingly live in like a subscription economy. Like we are more familiar with this than ever. So I, I think that ought to resonate with people. And that idea where like farmers having to spend a lot of time doing a kind of individual sales day at a farmer's market, as opposed to knowing these are our regular customers. This is how much I'm going to need to be producing, et cetera. That just makes a ton of sense. Totally. And the farmers have been invested into that growing season for like months ahead of when the produce is actually ready to go. So them to have some income coming in a little bit earlier is awesome. Mm -hmm. And it also means that they get to connect with their consumers. So it's really important for consumers to connect with their farmers but for farmers to connect with their consumers means they also get like direct feedback as far as like what's going well, what am I growing that you like, what could I be doing differently. And they also can provide some of the like food education part. So a lot of farmers will provide recipes for different things that they're including in the box so that people are starting to expand their palates and think differently. Like when you show up to the grocery store, you know exactly what you want. But when you receive your CSA box, maybe there's a couple items that you wouldn't have typically picked. And now you get to kind of explore some different vegetables. So do you have a sense of sort of how CSAs are doing beyond like ours in the Gunnison Valley? Like, is it sort of like people that are listening to this, go get linked up, go do a web search, get involved with your CSA. Are these just, I think you've kind of spoken to this a little bit already, but are these just being underutilized right now by like a little or a lot, or it really depends on the community? I think it's hard to know exactly. I know they've grown a lot in the last few years. It's just become a really great model for farmers mm -hmm. and for consumers. It's a little bit easier. The government actually doesn't like track the amount of CSAs, but there's a couple of websites that do. So the websites that aren't maybe fully like showing the actual depth of how many CSAs there are estimate that there's around 4,000 across the U.S. right now, and there might be a lot more than that. Um, I think a lot of people think it's limited to the summer, but you can actually, there's farmers who provide shoulder se season CSAs, so spring and fall. And even here in the Gunnison Valley, there is a winter CSA. So if it can be done in Gunnison, it can be mm. done pretty much anywhere. anywhere. Um, so I think... There's a website that I use to kind of see where CSAs are at across the U.S., and that's www.localharvest.org, and that's a great way to see the CSAs that operate near you. Um, some CSAs are deliveries, so you can actually have it delivered to your house. Others, you just have to show up once a week and pick up your box. Okay, so get involved with your local CSA. Aside from that, 
what would be another thing people could do here? Yeah, so I think the next obvious one is farmer's markets. Um, There is a lot of farmer's markets that exist in mountain towns. Um, Almost all mountain towns I've been to have a farmer's market. And sometimes the farmers are having to travel a little far, maybe an hour to that mountain town to show up for their farmer's market. But it is a still a great method to be able to go buy some local goods and to also meet your farmer. Um, there's some great programs across the U.S., like speaking to the food insecurity, where if you have food stamps, you can actually like double your money at a farmer's market if you show up um, with your food stamps. So that's a great program that I wish more people knew about. Mm. Um, so, you know, instead of buying half the amount of produce at a grocery store, you can show up and double effectively double that at a farmer's market. Um, farmers markets are kind of time intensive for farmers, but they're still just a great like community event. And I think they have a really, um, just like strongholds as far as like a community event where you get to see your friends, see your farmers. They're a good time. And certainly for the many people who come to visit mountain town communities, they're not going to be signing up for a monthly CSA box. So that would be a good thing to have on their radar. Um, if they're coming into town for several days, like time it, get to the local farmer's market and there you go. Good use of that too. Yeah, definitely. What else? Where should we go? Um, so there's, again, I just want to reiterate, there's so many different options. So even if you're not like looking to purchase local food every week, um, I think the seasonal eating is one thing we can think about. Um, so even though we're accustomed to a globalized diet, if we start eating just like a little bit less vegetables in the heart of winter or maybe like less fruits in the heart of winter, that's one thing we can do. But also thinking of times where you can maybe freeze or store the food. So a lot of people who have CSAs might have like too many greens at a certain point. But if you can just like chop those up, freeze them, now you have greens in the middle of the winter. Um, I realize that sometimes storage is an issue but that is an option for certain people. Um, Also buying like local meat and keeping that in your freezer. Um, There's just those opportunities to make that choice to support a local producer. Mm -hmm. There is still a plenty of other opportunities to kind of interact with your local food system. The obvious one is that farmers always need help. There's so much work to be done at, um, on farms pretty much all throughout the spring, summer, and sometimes into the fall. So if just the very concept of farming and getting your hands dirty is intriguing to you, then I would recommend finding a local farm and volunteering. A lot of farms do provide like volunteer days. So that's a great way to kind of go meet the farmer, see what it's like to grow food, maybe harvest some food. Um, chances are you might take some food home with you that day. Um, there's also a lot of great nonprofits that operate within the food security and food system space. And so there's maybe one in your town that you could kind of get involved with and see what they're up to and the different measures they're taking to build a more local food system in your community. Um, and then lastly, I think there's always the option of trying your hand at growing food yourself. So even if you're limited on space, I know people right here in Crested Butte that grow food out of pots in their front yard. Even when you're limited on space, you can find ways to at least provide some food to yourself, which is effectively creating less demand on like those larger industrial industrial food systems. And you're able to feed yourself some food that you grew. What kind of food are people growing in pots in their oh, front man. yard? 
I've seen a lot, but uh, I have some friends that are doing tomatoes. They have like some little lettuce beds. Um, yeah, it's 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 limited as far as what you can do, but it's still something. And I think it's just really neat when you are able to consume something that you grew yourself. Not that this is the most important thing, but would just kind of in reinforce the like, right, things can be grown here and kind of ties in probably builds that stronger connection with like what is happening in the local food growing scene. Mm -hmm. Are we going to talk about greenhouses? <laughs> you have a big one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's big. Is that regarded as big? Not really. They get a lot bigger. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, Tim's question talks about greenhouses. Right. And it's a really important piece of all of this because growing food in these climates isn't always easy. Um, here in the Gunnison Valley, we receive less than 55 frost-free days per season. Per winter. Per year. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but 55. Yeah, so it's... It's extreme. We're a zone four for plant hardiness. For those that don't know what that means, it's just like how it kind of is like a scale for actually like how difficult it is to grow food in a region. And we're kind of on the extreme as are other mountain towns, I'm sure. Um, so the one thing you'll hear a lot of producers talking about, your farmers talking about, is season extension. And this is done in greenhouses or like the really large greenhouses you see sometimes, which are called high tunnels. And they're a really useful tool to be able to grow food in these colder climates. They're actually almost necessary. Um, so greenhouses help you extend the season both in the spring and the fall because you're able to get stuff in the ground earlier, um, way earlier than you'd ever be able to go plant outside. And they kind of pro obviously provide like some insulation and a little bit of nice, uh, cozy environment for your vegetables. Um, but they also help diversify the types of food that can be grown. So it would be almost impossible to grow things like squash and peppers and tomatoes in the Gunnison Valley if it weren't for high tunnels or greenhouses. Um, so they, they not only lengthen the season, sometimes by as much as like 60 or 90 days, they also make it possible to grow a lot of different crops. Okay, so what about the like greenhouse, not at the small level of pot in your front yard, but like how small can we make these things? If we wanted to take a step up from growing the food in a pot in the front yard and we were interested in the extension of the growth season, what's happening on the greenhouse front or like the, the tiny homes greenhouse, you know, kind of example, like what, what's happening in that space? Yeah, those are, I mean, those are awesome because there's a lot of like kind of scaled down ways that people are growing food now. And it's really cool to see the different options. I know like people that have little systems on their kitchen counter that actually like grow greens for them year round. Um, so it can be scaled down to that size. I'd say the good news is a lot of farmers use their really large greenhouses to get a lot of seedlings going early on in the season. And then you as a interested gardener can show up at a farmer's market and buy the seedlings um, because what it actually looks like to grow food in these areas is farmers start planting seeds in indoor spaces um, such as greenhouses, often heated greenhouses, as early as mid-February um, through mid-March. And those seeds are going to be taken care of and not planted outside until mid to late May. 
um, in climates such as this. And so there's these systems that kind of help get more seedlings available for when people are ready to start planting outside. Even as like a backyard gardener, you can purchase some of these seedlings. Um, and then there's really small greenhouses that can be super productive. I've seen like tiny greenhouses that produce like way more tomatoes than a single family can eat. So even a small greenhouse that provides lots of light, insulates the plants a little bit, um, can really help you to grow crops that you really want to grow that might not do well outside, such as like basil or tomatoes, um, but also just produce food um, maybe beyond what you thought was possible. Hmm. Where else do you want to go? Yeah, so I think um, just another thing is the crops that are available in your region might not be things that you're like super used to eating or things that you maybe know how to cook or prepare in ways that you like. Um, so like here in the Valley, we do a lot of like cold hardy, short succession crops. So that means like things that grow quick, don't take a ton of days to mature. Um, oftentimes a lot of greens and then a lot of like root vegetables do well. So like radishes and turnips and beets. And so I think it's been really helpful for consumers to kind of find different ways to um, utilize these crops. And that's what I like to refer to as like food literacy. So we're just, we're not only growing the food, we're teaching people how to use the food and prepare it in ways that they actually enjoy. Um, so education and increasing food literacy is another component to this. Um, I like that food yeah. literacy. I one. also love beets. Oh, you know good. That? Not everyone does. I love beets. Last year, people were like way too many beets. We don't want this many beets. You, that you guys grew? Yeah. So last year, certain uh, customers for our CSA <laughs> thought we maybe grew too many beets, but they grow well. You can do a lot of different things with them. Some people just need to know how to use them. I might fall in the latter camp of the people who need to learn how to use them, but I know I like to eat the ones that have been prepared. Oh, good. Yeah. That's a good start. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about growing out of the pots in your front yard. We've talked about the range of greenhouse options. What other what other ways, methods, technologies are being used these days to grow food in places where sometimes it's difficult to grow food? Yeah, I think it's there's two parts to this. One is like the cold climate and the really short growing season that can make it tricky. But there's a lot of different technologies that have been used to help producers in that sense. Um, so I mentioned like the greenhouses. There's also uh, a lot of producers will use row cover. That's just like that thin white cover. That's kind of what you pull out when it's like July 15th and you're about to have a freak frost. Um, so there's methods of just like doing ensuring as much protection to these crops that you've been working for months at. Um, but then there's kind of some like more, I guess, new age technologies that are making it really easy to grow food, even on a, not really easy, but making it more possible to grow food on a 365 day a year basis. Um, so the big ones that people are kind of learning more about actually scaling up in their communities are, aquaponics and hydroponics. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually have a new farmer here in the Gunnison Valley, Alex Van Zant. She's my neighbor, Gunny Gal. She's awesome. Uh, she has a new aquaponics greenhouse and she's producing vegetables every single day of the year. It's an incredible setup. 
Aquaponics is basically a closed loop system where you're actually raising fish with your crops. And it's also a soilless system, so you're not using soil. What this means is you can grow a lot more in a lot less space. Um, and the fish are great because they're also something you get to consume. And they help, uh, they help provide nutrients to the plants and the plants help filter the water of the fish. So it's just kind of this like closed loop system. Um, hydroponics is effectively a similar system, but without the fish. And it's just really cool to see some of these technologies be scaled because in Gunnison, you know, on a negative 20 day in the winter, you're still able to procure local food. Um, and, you know, there might be some, um, some, kind of costs to that as well, especially like energy costs and things like that. But you still think about food being trucked in a thousand miles versus food still just being grown here. There is an offset there to the point where growing food in any capacity locally has less of a footprint. And like in Crested Butte, it's a really dense area. It's There's not a lot of space to expand and grow food. Um, it's going to be ha pretty hard to find like a really large backyard if you want to be a backyard gardener. Um, but there's some really cool systems of vertical gardening where you're actually like growing upward instead of outward. Um, a lot of those are hydroponic systems as well. So you're not using soil. You're just using a little bit of water and some inputs, some nutrient inputs. Um, but yeah, I think it's really cool just to kind of explore some of these options, especially for these mountain towns where there's not a ton of space and there's cold climate. Um, scaling up some of these will definitely be a huge part of building a larger local food system. So given all the stuff we've talked about, how do these things relate to kind of like the environmental health of a given town or region? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we're like skiers, we're bikers. We love the places that we live in. Um, we obviously care about these landscapes. And I think it's really easy to connect to these landscapes when we're out doing our favorite activities. Um, I have found that I connect to the environment, not only when I'm biking and skiing, but also when I'm growing food and farming and kind of connecting to the soil and understanding soil health a little bit better. Um, so I think that's where, as people who enjoy being outdoors, um, supporting local food really helps like bolster more environmental health for the place that you live. And that's because a lot of these practices and a lot of these small farmers and producers are the ones who are encouraging biodiversity. So if you're doing farming in a way that makes sense for the long-term health of your land, that means that you're um, not only encouraging biodiversity of what you're growing, you're probably also thinking about like wild life habitat and pollinator habitat. So you're trying to bring pollinators into your garden and, and you might be doing that by planting different native perennial species that the pollinators can rely on. Do you um, just mean bees? Can you just say bees? Why no, you gotta there's fancy, so many pollinators. Why you gotta fancy it up so much? Moths. Moths. Birds. Bats. Any others? I feel like I am forgetting some. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're planting stuff. You're helping the bees. That's great. <laughs> Kara needs to often just dumb things down for me. She's learning this. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, but we don't mean to exclude the birds and or the, the bats or the moths. Mm -hmm. They're all they're all essential. All right. 
All right. I don't like the moths so much. Oh, they're great. All oh, right. butterflies too. Excuse me. Oh, gosh, the butterflies. A lot of these practices are also just really centered on soil health. So soil, I think a lot of farmers, um, especially farmers that kind of claim themselves to be regenerative, and you may have heard that term before, regenerative farming means you're building soil health and restoring degraded soil through agriculture. So you're actually using your crop production to restore a natural ecosystem. And this is a good approach for farmers to take because it means that you're only making your land more productive over time instead of degrading it over time. So this regenerative approach is becoming much more popular and it's what a lot of these small producers are taking on as kind of the core belief or the core way that they operate. And so when you talk to producers um, in this space, a lot of times they're talking about how they're not just farming food, but they're farming soil. And that's important because soil is your capacity to grow food well, but it's also your capacity for the land to hold moisture. Um, so the healthier the soil, the more soil moisture retention. And this is especially important in times of drought. So if you're taking on these different approaches, you're keeping more moisture on the land, more water in the soil. Um, these are all things that help us be more resilient in times of drought and um, other factors like that. Soil is also important because if you keep it covered and you always are trying to build a healthier soil, um, it's locking carbon into the land. So once you um, increase soil organic matter, it has more carbon sequestration capacity and it's actually holding that carbon down in the land. It's not being released and so a lot of these farmers practice methods such as cover cropping, which means when their beds aren't in production for vegetables, they're putting down nitrogen-fixing plants um, that can kind of help keep the soil covered because bare soil is really bad. We always want to have soil covered with plant life as much as we possibly can. Um, so things such as cover cropping help build nitrogen into the soil, and it also helps keep the, uh, the soil covered so that it's not just like well, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to have soil bare. Yeah, so I think soil just becomes kind of like the thing that we center into really good agricultural practices is like how can we build better soil over time and are the practices that we're implementing degrading the soil or regenerating the soil and we always want to move towards the regenerating side. Got it. I think we're going to wrap this up, but I want to hear more about Sunny Sage Farm. We're going to be circling back on a number of these. This was kind of our, like, I think of this as the pool break kind of for this mini series. So we're going to be circling back, I think, on a number of the topics that you've kind of introduced for us here. But before I let you go, talk a bit more about Sunny Sage and this little uh, thing you got going with your wonderful partner, Zach. Yeah. So as I mentioned this is the first time I put like my farming energy towards my own project. It's so exciting. It's a complete dream come true. Um, there's a lot of barriers to farming. So I feel really grateful right now that I'm able to have this plot of land and start to build it into what I want to be uh, my long-term vision. And um, yeah, so I don't want to undermine like how difficult it can be for some young farmers to access land 
um, to have a healthy arable land. Um, but Sunny Sage is just a really exciting opportunity right now. It's a six acre plot down in Gunnison. Um, and I'm not really on like the production side right now. I can't call myself a farmer necessarily because I know what it means to be a farmer when you're spending 13, 14 hour days in the field. Um, but right now we're building a lot of infrastructure into the long-term health of this space and hope hopefully making it so that once we want to move towards more production, everything's in place and it's a little bit easier pivot um, away from some of this like perennial grasslands into more crop production. So most recently we did a whole permaculture design, which permaculture is basically like trying to design an entire part of a uh, piece of property or even larger scale than that to really be like a closed loop system um, with as much like thriving biodiversity as possible, really thinking like long-term into the health of the land and then long-term into how to cater that land to um, what your goals are. So like for Zach and I, it's going to be producing food for ourselves and eventually our community and just trying to really optimize the soil health on that property. Um, so we this spring, we planted 200 trees, um, about 100 of those, or I guess a little over 100 are evergreen trees that are going to build an initial wind block. Um, so we're trying to think about how to create a microclimate because it can be really windy and awful in Gunnison sometimes. If we can build a wind block, that'll actually help create a microclimate on our property where the crops won't be receiving as much of this brutal cold wind from the northwest. Um, and then in front of that, we uh, planted a bunch of cold hardy fruit trees that we will hopefully have production on in a few years. Um, eventually beneath all of those fruit trees, I'll be planting some really great perennial herbs and other crops that can be used medicinally and, um, also for, you know, pollinators, things like that. So trying to think like holistically about this entire system. Um, and then just, of course, the annuals that we'll be planting every year, the annual crops, which are, are mostly our food consumption crops. And then we have a bunch of chickens. Yeah, you do. <laughs> So I'm I'm definitely the crazy chicken lady. Yeah, you are. <laughs> People are like, so you don't have dogs or cats? Nope, just chickens. But they're awesome. Um, so we operate. <laughs> we have a, and this is where a, what's really cool is that if you raise animals and livestock in a certain way, they can actually help you with your long-term land health goals. So I think a lot of times especially cows, get a really bad name for being so degrading to landscapes. But in the name of regenerative farming, all this all this livestock and or chickens or whatever you're raising for your personal operation, um, if raised in the right way, will actually help you build uh, soil health over time. And so it's really about like having for livestock, um, like cows or sheep, having high intensity rotational grazing. So they're being moved from one plot to the next and um, they're not ever spending too long on a certain piece of land to the point where it can't bounce back healthier than it was before. So in certain ways, these animals can actually provide um, some of like the ecological disturbance that grasslands and other types of um, the sort of ecosystems we have in this region rely on 
but obviously when done poorly can go the other direction. But we operate our chickens in what we call chicken tractors. And so... <laughs> that doesn't actually sound good. Oh, well... I mean, it's super cool, <laughs> but the name, somebody like, might be like... What does this mean? Like tractors, like overrunning chickens. It's not quite... No, so it's a tractor because the chickens are doing the work. <laughs> they are, yeah. <laughs> so we're moving our chickens every single day onto new pasture. Um, they're in mobile coops. Yeah, it's a mobile chicken coop. That's yeah. a better name than chicken tractor. Chicken tractor actually is the better <laughs> name. Mobile chicken coop is far more descriptive and sounds less like, I don't know, you might be grinding chickens up like lawnmowering chickens. I'm here to help. This is what I do, Kara. They're doing the work. They are like a tractor. Chicken tractor, okay. okay. <laughs> but it's awesome because the chickens move to new pasture, they eat up the grass, um, they scratch around, they kind of help create, again, like that ecological disturbance that grasslands rely on, and they leave their nutrients via manure. And then, you know, the next day they're moved on to the next piece of pasture, and you can kind of see that pasture immediately regenerate or bounce back after the chickens have been on it. So it's just a really cool system. Um, actually, Joel Salatin, he's a big name in the agriculture space. He's the one that kind of came up with chicken tractors and he runs them on a huge scale, um, like hundred, I mean, hundreds of chickens. And so it's really cool. I mean, there's a lot of good designs out there. Um, chickens are another great way to kind of, if you have a little bit of space, maybe have three or four chickens Waking up to eggs is awesome. I love raising chickens. They're easy. They eat your food scraps. Um, yeah, they're funny. They're kind of like dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them sometimes function as therapy chickens. I have a therapy chicken. <laughs> she actually almost died. Yeah, she's been in the intensive care unit for like nine days. But she's What happened? No? Just some issues. Chicken. She had some problems. Okay. She's a she's a tiny little chicken, a little silky chicken. Do you want to so say her name? Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But she's the best. And uh, she's my therapy chicken. And she's back to health thanks to some more time than I'm will, willing to admit. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe we need to have a special episode dedicated to therapy chickens. On the Blister Podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad Gandalf the Gray is doing better. Yeah. You doing okay? She's good. You doing okay? Yeah. It took some. Okay. It took some time and some patience, but. Okay. She's back. All right. Amazing way to end this conversation, <laughs> I think. Let's leave it at that for now. But a couple things, just keep things a bit actionable here. Seems to me the number one thing that you were kind of driving home people can and should find and identify and then get in touch with their local CSA. You mentioned a website that might be a good way to start going about that. Totally. Um, and this is a website that will not only show you all the CSAs in your region, but also all the farmer's markets in your region. Great. And that is www.localharvest.org. Great. Anything else you want for an actionable piece here? Or is that is that kind of a good thing for now? No, I think that's great. I mean, I hope that I provided a scope of different ways that you can kind of become more involved with your local food system. There's, you know, a lot of different uh, ways and different capacities that you can become involved, but just do what makes sense for you and know that every time you're choosing locally, you're making a choice that is supporting that producer, you're building that demand locally, 
and that by supporting producers that are farming in a regenerative way, you are helping to protect the land that you love and the land that you recreate in, and it is all the system. So through the food that you, through the food choices we make, we can protect the land that we care about. Hmm. Kara, thank you. I'm happy to get this little series launched and I'm looking forward to the next installments of this. I think our plan is to kind of try to roll these out sort of every other week. And so that's our plan for now. And in our blister newsletters, we will drop soon kind of like exactly where we're headed in the next where we're still talking a little bit about what makes sense in terms of episode two versus three or if three should go before two and that kind of thing but um this is going to be cool and uh happy to start in on these topics with you yeah it's exciting i mean thanks to tim for asking the right question we got to kind of dive into all the different pieces of this and um it's just really exciting for me to be able to talk about some of these things on the Blister podcast and to get some of you guys in mountain towns thinking about local food and how it's grown in these colder regions. Absolutely. And more good news, ladies and gentlemen. This coming Friday over on our Gear 30 podcast, you're going to get even more Kara Williard. We'll probably talk a bit less about food in that one and a bit more about ski boots and other weird aspects of your background. (laughs) We will get the scorpion and snake jungle farming stories. Um, So there's a lot to look forward to for all of us, really. And uh, anyway, let's leave it at that for now. Thanks, Kara. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And thanks to all of you for listening. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Kara for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, this Wednesday on our new podcast called Crafted. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that soon. Thursday is our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And then Friday... Kara's going to be back talking to Luke Coppa and me on Gear 30. So subscribe to all of those shows. We've got a lot of fantastic conversations coming up here, and I will talk to all of you real soon.